there's no better feeling than a personal win. And the State Farm Personal Price Plan can help you do just that. Talk to a State Farm agent today to learn how you can bundle and save with the personal price plan. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Prices are based on rating plans that vary by state. Coverage options are selected by the customer. Availability, amount of discounts and savings, and eligibility vary by state. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Due to the graphic nature of this podcast, listener discretion is advised. This episode features discussions of drug use, sexuality, and other adult content. We advise extreme caution for listeners under 13. Jennifer Gibbons felt the porous grid of the brick in her hands. She looked at her twin. It was time. Jennifer threw the brick through the window. She slowly shimmied through the hole, careful to avoid the jagged shards of glass still embedded in the frame. Moments later, she appeared at the front door of the tractor store to usher her sister, June, inside. The 18-year-old twins had been planning this caper for weeks, and finally, on October 24, 1981, the right moment had come. The two girls made their way to the office. Jennifer dug out a small can of gasoline from inside her jacket. She carefully poured it over a desk and chair, saturating the wood. June produced a match and lit some papers on the edge of the desk on fire. With a fantastic whoosh, the desk erupted in flames that licked the ceiling above. Delighting in their fiery success, the girls ran smiling to the next room, splashing gasoline as they went. June lit another match, setting the main tractor storeroom alight. When everything was aflame, the girls rushed outside to examine their handiwork. Before long, a small crowd gathered with them, watching the Haverford West Fire Brigade attempt to stop the blaze. The twins strolled home, glorying in their success. June wrote of their triumph in her diary, saying, All the while, my lovely, glorious fire was licking its way through the roof, and the thick smoke filled the night sky. It was a picture which will live in my mind forever. Oh, what a sinful, evil, selfish mind. But what the twins didn't realize was that their presence at the fire had been noticed. They were suspected immediately due to their reputation. June and Jennifer were well known in town and considered unique. The identical black women stood out in the all-white rural Welsh countryside. But more than that, they were undeniably bizarre. For as long as they lived there, the twins had barely spoken a word to anyone else in the village. 
Welcome to Unexplained Mysteries, a ParCast original. I'm your host, Molly. And I'm your host, Richard. In life, there's so much we don't know. But in this show, we don't take we don't know for an answer. Every Thursday, we investigate the greatest mysteries of history and life on Earth. You can find episodes of Unexplained Mysteries and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. To stream Unexplained Mysteries for free on Spotify, just open the app and type Unexplained Mysteries in the search bar. At ParCast, we're grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. And if you enjoyed today's episode, the best way to help is to leave a five-star review wherever you're listening. It really does help. This is our first episode on Jennifer and June Gibbons, the silent twins. From age eight, Jennifer and June refused to speak to anyone but each other. For most of their youth, they isolated themselves, preferring to live out their days in a rich fantasy world rather than reality. The question is, why? This week, we'll cover the twins' childhood and adolescence in Wales and how the combination of social isolation and a childhood game morphed into an intense connection and later, dual psychosis. Next week, we'll dive into possible explanations for the twins' behavior, their inability to communicate with the outside world, and their game's tragic end. The story of June and Jennifer Gibbons came to the public's attention after journalist Marjorie Wallace first published her book, The Silent Twins, in 1986. For most of their childhood and adolescence, the strange mute twins were dismissed as unintelligent criminals. It was only after Marjorie gained access to their diaries, poems, and manuscripts that she realized the two girls were brilliant, electric writers with sharp wits and a need to create. June and Jennifer were passionate young women stuck in a paranoid cycle of their own creation. After years of playing their game of silence and attempting to match in all ways, they found they were unable to stop. They believed the only way that one twin could lead a normal life was for the other to die. June and Jennifer's parents, Gloria and Aubrey, met and married in Barbados in 1955. They quickly started a family, having a daughter, Greta, in 1957, and son, David, in 1959. Aubrey had grown up attending English-style boarding schools and had a dream of becoming what he called a proper English gentleman. He moved the family to Wales in 1960 and joined the Royal Air Force as a technician. The move was difficult, and Gloria and the children felt isolated as a black Barbadian household on the almost all-white RAF base. But Gloria and Aubrey had high hopes that their two newest daughters would assimilate. June Gibbons was born at 8.10 a.m. on April 11, 1963, at the Royal Air Force Hospital in Aden, Yemen. Ten minutes later, at 8.20 a.m., her sister Jennifer joined her. While Gloria and Aubrey were a charming couple and loving parents, 
Aubrey had traditional views toward marriage. As a result, he left all matters of household and child-rearing to Gloria, who became especially overwhelmed after having her fifth child, Rosemary, called Rosie, in 1967. With little acknowledgement from their father and a mother who had no time for individual attention, June and Jennifer turned to each other for friendship and comfort. When they started school around age four, the twins' teachers reported the girls were slow in speech development. They would talk to each other and occasionally to other students, but never to teachers or adults. While Gloria was initially worried, she was reassured by friends and family that the girls would grow out of their shyness. The school put the girls in speech therapy, but with their overworked mother Gloria unable to focus on their lessons with them, they never practiced at home. Making it harder, June and Jennifer were constantly uprooted. The family was forced to move cities every few years due to Aubrey's military job. This lack of stability only hindered their speech development. Unable to make lasting friendships at school, the girls increasingly relied on each other for companionship. In 1974, the family settled more permanently in the village of Haverford West, Wales, but the 11-year-old twins' peculiarities soon marked them as outsiders. By this time, June and Jennifer had even withdrawn from their family. They only spoke to Rosie, their seven-year-old sister, and each other. Gloria recalled hearing them talking to each other through their bedroom door and compared it to the twittering of birds. Even Rosie could only catch a word or two of the strange twin language they had created. The two girls were often spotted walking incredibly slowly, one a few feet behind the other in perfect synchronicity. They attempted to follow each other's lead so that any motion they made was in perfect unison. The girls refused to eat or go to the bathroom at school. They wouldn't answer teachers or socialize with other students. All the Gibbons children faced harassment for their skin color, but June and Jennifer were also bullied mercilessly for their strange habits. Other kids would call them names and pull their hair. The school eventually allowed the twins to leave class five minutes early to avoid their tormentors. Of course, this only isolated them even more. The twins retreated further into their silence. The truly strange thing about all this was that neither the school nor the Gibbons family sought to dive further into the girls' bizarre affectations. It wasn't until November 1976 when the girls were 13, that anyone seriously suggested that the silent girls might need psychological treatment. Dr. John Reese, a local school medical officer, was providing tuberculosis vaccinations in the Haverford West School gym when he first met the Gibbons twins. As he described it, he was presented with a parade of thin white arms to inoculate when, unexpectedly, a girl's slight black arm appeared before him. There were very few people of color in this area of Wales, so he was surprised. He grabbed the girl's arm and looked up into her face, ready to make a joke as he normally did to ease the school children's tensions. 
But the girl in front of him was staring steadfastly ahead, refusing to acknowledge him. He was even more taken aback when, as he gave her the shot, she had absolutely no reaction. After a few more children, he was met by a second girl with the exact same face and impassive gaze. Again, her eyes were fixed straight ahead, giving no perceptible response as he gave her the vaccination. Dr. Reese was so disturbed by meeting the twins that he spoke to the school headmaster about them. He was shocked when he heard that the school didn't seem interested in the sisters' strange behavior. The headmaster told him that since the girls completed their work and didn't create problems, they didn't see cause to investigate further. When Reese went to visit the girls at home, he heard a similar story. Gloria and Aubrey told the doctor how the girls spoke to each other but had completely cut themselves off from their family. Like the school, Gloria and Aubrey were unworried by the girls' behavior and dismissed it as shyness. It's worth mentioning here that this was one of the many times when institutional or implicit racism came into play for the Gibbons twins. Pulitzer Prize-winning journalist Hilton Owls wrote about these instances in his article on the twins for The New Yorker, entitled, We Too Made One. Since June and Jennifer weren't delinquents, the school didn't push the matter of their silence further. Hilton suggests that if they were white British girls instead of the black children of immigrants, it's probable the school would have done more. But in 1976, the school hadn't even bothered to speak with the twins' parents about their disturbing lack of speech. While Dr. John Reese took a more avid interest in the girls' psychological health, even he dismissed some of it on the basis of race. He referred to the girls as zombies, a term sometimes negatively associated with black Caribbean culture. By using this word, he was implying that due to their background, their issues were not psychological, but mystical. He also chalked up their parents' denial of the strange behavior to a cultural difference. He had heard the twins were thought to have strange behavior in Caribbean culture and assumed that was the reason for Gloria and Aubrey's indifference. However, Reese was the first to question whether the girl's behavior wasn't simply due to profound oddness, but was caused by deeper psychological issues and he did persuade the family to seek therapy. As the girls began therapy, it soon became apparent that the silence wasn't completely voluntary. Instead, the refusal to speak, the isolation, and the strange movements were caused by one of the twins wishing to hold power over the other. Jennifer, the younger twin, was twisting the rules of their childhood games to control June. Next, we'll dive into the twins' struggle for dominance. This episode is brought to you by Etsy. Looking to instantly upgrade your Mother's Day gift from typical to meaningful? Shop Etsy. Now until May 12th, get up to 30% off personalized jewelry, style, decor, and so many other items mom will love. And if you want her to know you put a ton of thought into her present, use gift mode. Gift Mode on Etsy takes the stress out of gifting so you can easily find well-crafted, original, and affordable pieces from small shops. 
Just tap or click Gift Mode on your Etsy app or Etsy.com. Then answer a few short questions about mom, and Gift Mode instantly gives you curated ideas based on hundreds of personas. Need something original and affordable for Mother's Day? Etsy has it. Shop until May 12th for up to 30% off gifts for mom. Terms apply. The Hargan women seem to have it all. We were blessed. My mom was amazing. But detectives would soon discover... Inside the house, there were the bodies of two women. A story of betrayal you would struggle to believe if it wasn't true. I am just praying to God, this is a sick joke. From 48 Hours, this is Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings. Listen to Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings, wherever you get your podcasts. Now back to the story. For years, identical twins June and Jennifer Gibbons' silence was regarded as a strange quirk. As they approached the age of 14, however, the adults in their lives were growing more concerned. When June and Jennifer were first referred to speech therapist Anne Treharn in February 1977, Anne knew she'd have a lot of work ahead of her. She first asked the girls questions about school, their family, and their hobbies. The girls both sat sullenly across from her, eyes downcast. They wouldn't respond physically to anything she said. June might occasionally give a whispered, monosyllabic answer. Jennifer remained pointedly silent. Anne Treharn quickly realized she wouldn't make any progress with the girls like this. So she tried a new tactic, using a tape recorder. The girls agreed to read aloud and speak to each other while being taped, but would only do so after Anne left the room. Using this method, Anne was able to crack the secret twin language that even the girl's own mother struggled to understand. By slowing down the tapes, she discovered their coded dialect was a mixture of Barbadian slang and plain English. But the girls spoke incredibly rapidly, stressed unexpected syllables, and both had a tendency to use a sh sound instead of an s sound. Anne also observed that June wanted to answer her questions. But when Anne asked a question, Jennifer would shoot June a signal with her eyes. Jennifer was controlling June, and her message was clear. You must not speak. With Jennifer influencing June this way, it seemed impossible to make any progress. After two months of assessment, Dr. Anne Treharn and Dr. John Reese recommended that June and Jennifer be enrolled in a special education program. They thought removing the girls from public school would give them a better chance to overcome their speech difficulties. So in April 1977, June and Jennifer transferred to Eastgate Center, a special education school. Here, the girls would finally get the personal attention they had sorely needed from their assigned teacher, Kathy Arthur. The girls wouldn't speak or even acknowledge Kathy, but during their first few months there, they were observed interacting with each other and younger children. In an eerie recording from Eastgate, the two girls can be seen eating potatoes incredibly slowly, each trying to perfectly match the other's movements. But by 1978, Eastgate therapists and teachers were at a loss. 
The girls were now 14, and after a year of therapy, had made no real improvement. Something had to change. Eastgate child psychologist Tim Thomas sat the twins down and told them that they would be separated. One of them would stay at Eastgate, and the other would go to St. David's Adolescent Unit, another school for special needs children. He recalled the girls didn't react at first, and then, almost imperceptibly, their hands clenched into fists. They turned to each other with a hateful gaze. Jennifer screamed and lunged at June, raking her nails down her older sister's cheek. The two chased each other around the room, screeching with rage. Tim and another teacher pulled the twins apart, and they immediately went limp. The staff at Eastgate had never seen the girls behave anything like this. The staff was torn about separating the girls. Some thought removing one would let the others succeed. Others thought the split would irreparably harm the girls' psyches. While the girls wouldn't talk to the staff face-to-face, they did call them at their homes late at night and beg to stay together at Eastgate. But the separatists eventually won, and on March 13, 1978, 14-year-old June was sent off to St. David's. It was disastrous. June was practically catatonic. She would sit in her chair during lessons, her head hanging, with a constant stream of tears and mucus flowing from her eyes and nose. The only signs of life she showed were when she was allowed to call Jennifer at lunch. Picking up the phone, she grew animated, speaking rapidly with Jennifer in their twin dialect. But when the call ended and she was forced to return to class, June took up the same position, not even registering the lessons she sat through. Two months later, the separation experiment was abandoned. Neither girl was making progress, and being apart made them despondent. It was obvious that twins should stay together if they were to have any chance of learning to live normal lives. June was transferred back to Eastgate. In 1978 and 1979, June and Jennifer first began to show an affinity for writing. While they wouldn't respond to their teachers vocally, they'd often address their questions via notes or daily diary entries. In these written accounts, the girls expressed their thoughts about their school and each other. June was desperate to prove she had an independent identity from her sister. She denied the assumption that their personalities were intertwined, writing, We both know we are individuals. We are not trying to tie one another down, either. We do not depend on one another. Jennifer felt differently. June and Tim Thomas recalled Jennifer yelling at June over and over, saying, You are Jennifer. You are Jennifer. You are me. June said, One day she'd wake up and be me, and one day I would wake up and be her. And we used to say to each other, give me back myself. If you give me back myself, I'll give you back yourself. Despite June's insistence, it appeared each twin's sense of self was irrevocably tied to the other. And there was nothing more the specialists at Eastgate could do for them. 
June and Jennifer left the Eastgate Center in 1979 at the age of 16. They had dismal marks, and their teachers recommended they shouldn't try to pursue any sort of higher education. And with their inability or refusal to speak with anyone besides each other, most jobs would be impossible. So June and Jennifer started the next chapter of their lives with no real prospects or support. They retreated into each other once more, locking themselves in their bedroom and leaving only once a week to collect their unemployment checks. They stopped talking to their family entirely, even their sister Rosie. The diaries the girls had kept at Eastgate turned into an obsession. They detailed the mundane events of their lives in the bedroom, sometimes writing multiple drafts to get their thoughts perfectly right before committing them to the pages of the diaries. They meditated on how they longed for a connection with their family downstairs. After years of silence, they feared the divide was too wide to cross. But instead of making an effort to connect, the girls created rich fantasy lives with a revolving cast of dolls. These toy families had storylines to rival the most outrageous soap operas, with characters marrying, divorcing, having children, and dying at a dizzying rate. The girls wrote plays starring the dolls and radio news and cooking shows they might listen to. The twins in the bedroom found themselves in a state of arrested development. They resented their changing teenage bodies and bound their breasts to keep their chest flat. They both wrote about new sexual feelings and were often afraid these thoughts were abnormal and sinful. They spent every minute with each other, eating, sleeping, writing, playing, and even violently fighting. Downstairs, Gloria would tell curious guests that the noises coming from above were the twins working. She'd say, they're just shy. That's why they don't come down. In 1980, just after the twins' 17th birthday, they turned a new corner. Now, the Gibbons house in Haverford West was filled with the unabating sound of two typewriters clicking away to the wee hours of the morning. The twins were certain that in just a few years, they would become famous best-selling writers. Working at a breakneck pace, the girls quickly churned out manuscripts. June wrote a novel about a disaffected teenage delinquent in America called Pepsi-Cola Addict. Jennifer's book was called Discomania and followed the exploits of a group of violent teenagers driven mad by disco music. Like their authors, the book's characters often struggled with failures to connect that led to disaster. The people they wrote about often struggled to cross a communication divide between themselves and their families. June succeeded in getting Pepsi-Cola Addict published by a vanity press. Jennifer sent her manuscript off to many legitimate publishers, but was never successful. It's possible that the girls would have been content to silently write their days away, locked up in their bedrooms, if they hadn't made a new discovery in 1981, boys. Both girls recorded obsessions with sex in their diaries. The twins longed for attention from the opposite sex and awkwardly began to court it. 
the girls began leaving the house armed with a pair of binoculars. They would hunt the boys they fancied, spying on them through windows, too afraid to approach them, but still desperate for connection. They even bought a set of occult and hypnotism books and tried to practice spells to make a selected boy appear at their house. One boy they fixated upon was Ted Davies, an American expat teenager. Ted was a troublemaker who had been enrolled at Eastgate with the twins. They remembered how he had stood up for them when other classmates bullied them. Please note that Ted Davies and all the names of his family members have been changed to protect their privacy. Beginning on their 18th birthday, April 11, 1981, they would spend all morning dressing in elaborate, attention-grabbing get-ups. Once their outfits were perfected, they would hire a taxi out to Welsh Hook, a tiny village approximately 10 miles from Haverford West, and notably where the Davies family lived. On their first visit to the house, June and Jennifer found an unlocked front door and no one home. The twins thought nothing of entering this relative stranger's house and quickly made themselves at home. Inside, they made themselves peanut butter sandwiches and poured glasses of orange juice. They marveled at the posters of Hawaii on the walls and American-style bomber jackets by the door. The girls rummaged through the Davies boys' drawers, stealing snapshots and trying on their clothes. When a car pulled into the driveway outside, the twins jumped to their feet, panicking. They attempted to flee out of a kitchen window, but were caught by Joe Davies, Ted's father, and his wife, Jackie. Rather than calling the police, the Davies decided to interrogate the girls themselves. June and Jennifer sat on the couch with their eyes downcast, refusing to answer questions about who they were and where they came from. It soon became clear that the girls wouldn't tell the Davies anything. Joe and Jackie took pity on the odd, silent twins and ordered a taxi to take them home. They told the girls to never come back. But when Jennifer and June adopted a new interest, it quickly turned into an obsession. The twins returned the next day and every day for weeks after. Even the news that Ted had moved to Philadelphia didn't stop them. They quickly turned their attentions to the three handsome brothers he had left behind. They hoped that by showing up at the Davies' house, they could entice the boys into a friendship or even a relationship. They would stand outside on the Davies' doorstep every morning, even when it rained. When Joe realized and banished them, the twins would wait under the bridge down the street, hoping one of the Davies' boys would notice them. Against all odds, it worked. 17-year-old John Davies and 14-year-old Bobby Davies were intrigued by the silent, staring girls. One day, when their father and stepmother were gone, they invited the twins inside the house. The girls' patience had paid off, and here they were, sitting inside with the boys of their dreams. Now, if only they could talk to them. But the boys had a solution for that. John and Bobby introduced June and Jennifer to vodka and sniffing glue and paint thinner. Suddenly, the girls were talking freely. 
When they were high with the Davies, they felt like normal teenagers, laughing at jokes and talking in their peculiar rapid-fire staccato. One night, while they were all drinking brandy and smoking pot, Bobby Davies brought the twins to a nearby church. He attempted to have sex with June, but was unsuccessful. But with Jennifer, it was different. She wrote in her diary how thrilled she felt that Bobby had taken her virginity and how she hoped he would be her husband. Two weeks later, June also lost her virginity to Bobby in the church. She resented the fact that Jennifer had lost hers first. In their lifelong rivalry, she saw this as a defeat. Jennifer had the upper hand, and when Bobby rejected June in favor of her sister, she felt it as a deep emotional blow. One night, while the two girls were walking along the Clothai River, June snapped. She rushed at Jennifer with a stick, intending to beat her. Jennifer screamed, If you kill me, I'll drive away your husband and destroy all your babies. June threw down the stick and lunged at her sister, pushing her off the low bridge into the river. June grabbed hold of Jennifer's slim shoulders and pushed her twin under the water, holding her head down as she struggled. Who knows how long she would have held her there had a car not crossed the bridge at that moment, illuminating the two sisters fighting in the dark. June let her sister go, and Jennifer rose, spluttering to the surface. Despite her anger and hatred, June couldn't kill her twin. I love you, she told Jennifer. I love you too, Jennifer said, holding on to June as she gasped for air. The strange, silent twins of Haverford West were hopelessly intertwined both unable to tolerate or live without the other. They had such intense rivalry, hatred, and love for one another that it seemed they could never be free. Over the next few weeks, June and Jennifer dragged each other down an ever darker path. But at its end lay a horrible cage, mirroring the imprisonment of their twinship. Next will follow the twins as they turn to a life of crime. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Now, back to the story. June and Jennifer Gibbons had spent their adolescence in lockstep. They moved with synchronized precision and refused to speak to anyone but each other in their bird-like, machine-gun-fire twin language. After graduating from secondary school, 
The girls found that drugs and alcohol enabled them to pierce the barrier that held them back from other normal people their age, if only for a little while. But even in their pursuit of the Davies brothers, they couldn't shake their habits. They were bound, unable to be truly happy together or apart. Perhaps due to their self-imposed isolation, 18-year-olds June and Jennifer weren't able to see how poorly the Davies boys were treating them. Though their relationship with the boys lasted less than two months, it was a tumultuous time. Bobby often beat Jennifer and would sometimes take a swing at June. The brothers would call them names and refuse to give them food, even when the twins spent the entire day at the Davies' house. Bobby would have sex with Jennifer while June watched, unflinching. He would sometimes have sex with June as well, though Jennifer was the prime object of his violent affections. But on July 6, 1981, the brothers announced that their father, Joe, a U.S. Navy officer, had been assigned to a post in Virginia and the whole family would be leaving with him. The twins treated the boys' departure with great ceremony. Both girls cut off locks of their hair to give to the Davies boys, and they begged the boys to give them something to remember them by. Bobby gave them an old-school blazer and a T-shirt, which Jennifer declared she would never wash. John gave them a winter jacket, but demanded five pounds before he'd let the twins take it. The girls treated the old clothes the boys gave them like prized possessions. In return, June gave John the gold watch she had received as an 18th birthday present, which he promptly threw aside. For the twins, life without the Davies was gray and dull. Having tasted a twisted shadow of love and friendship, they longed for more. June and Jennifer took to wandering the streets of Haverford West, stealing unsecured bikes and sniffing glue. They began binge eating, seeking to drown their loneliness in food. In her diary, Jennifer wrote about feeling a deep coldness inside her. She saw other people as only her enemies and believed she lacked the warmth needed to have meaningful relationships with anyone other than June. After a number of disappointing sexual adventures with village boys, June wrote about being fed up, longing for a real romantic relationship with a man. The boredom was becoming suffocating. The twins felt they had to do something. On September 12, 1981, the twins broke into the Portfield Special Education School near Haverford West. Jennifer used a rock to smash a window squeeze inside, and unlock the door for June. June wrote about it in her diary. A lousy day. Broke into the Portfield Special School. Inside was this wonderful TV. Managed to watch the beginning of a film with John John. Also nicked a few Jackie mags. Really fantastic. Why do this? Nothing else to do. No friends. Nothing to fill in the cold hour. Winter is here, and all the birds will fly back south. I wish I could be with them. To break up the monotony of their new young adult lives, the girls escalated their forays into petty crime. 
They never sought to cause real damage or make off with significant sums. Instead, they vandalized and stole to pass the time. June and Jennifer broke into more schools like Portfield, usually stealing a few small items and writing graffiti, still refusing to speak to their parents or most adults face-to-face. The girls delighted in calling the police station and taunting them with details of their small-time misdemeanors. But the thrill of stealing snacks and magazines didn't last long. June and Jennifer were desperate to find a new purpose. Like their interest in writing and the Davies boys, this new journey into crime was quickly becoming an obsession. And with each break-in, they were growing bolder. Throughout October, June began to write about wanting to create a gasoline bomb. Quote, I'm planning on making petrol bombs. A bottle, petrol, and paper, then hurl it through the window. I'm going to be the biggest arsonist around. And on October 23, 1981, they escalated their activities from theft to arson. The girls waited until nightfall to break into the tennis complex in Haverford West. They rooted around before finally locating the kitchen. Dismayed that there weren't any chips or snack cakes left to steal, they decided to try lighting their first fire. The twins sprayed lighter fluid across the tables and stoves. They lit a match and set a small blaze, which quickly destroyed the kitchen. The next night, they turned their sights to the tractor store on Snowdrop Lane. June and Jennifer had been writing about wanting to burn the shop to the ground for weeks. After their practice run at the tennis courts had gone so smoothly, they excitedly went forward with their plan. In the dark of the night, the two delinquent twins broke into the tractor shop. They quickly sloshed gasoline all over the office and main storehouse before setting the shop alight. This was their piece de resistance. For weeks, they had been testing the authorities of Haverford West, getting away with larger and larger offenses. As they watched the fire engulf the store, they felt untouchable. Here was proof that the twins could do anything they wanted. Finally, they felt powerful. But while the twins were in their own world, the villagers had taken notice of them. The twins had a reputation for stealing bikes and making trouble. And now, a number of eyewitnesses placed them at the scene of the tractor store fire. There was a storm of petty crime happening at Haverford West, and the Gibbons twins were at the center of it. They were brought in for questioning by the police, ostensibly for abusing the 999 emergency line. At the station, they refused to answer any of the police's questions, so they were released with a warning and went right back to crime. On November 8, 1981, the girls broke into a technical college. However, this time they were spotted by a police constable. The constable radioed for backup, and a few minutes later, reinforcements arrived. The officers quickly entered the college and rushed to the room where the constable had spotted a broken window. Silhouetted in the policemen's flashlights were June and Jennifer Gibbons, 
the girls were caught red-handed spraying the room with a can of gasoline. In their possession was a bag full of stolen property, a number of cassette tapes, stationery, and half a pack of mints. After two short months, the twin-powered crime wave came to an abrupt end. In her book, The Silent Twins, author and psychologist Marjorie Wallace wonders about the twins' motivation for breaking into the technical college that night. They had seen the constable making his rounds out front, yet trespassed anyway. Marjorie believed that the girls wanted to be caught. Like with their unorthodox pursuit of the Davies boys, the girls wanted to be noticed by someone, anyone. Stuck in their silent game with each other and unable to express their wishes to anyone else, they turned to crime to get attention. What the girls didn't know was that the eight weeks of petty theft, arson, and property damage were some of the last they'd spend in freedom. On November 10th, June and Jennifer were denied bail. The police believed that if they were released, they would reoffend. The two 18-year-olds were sent to Puckle Church Remand Center, 130 miles from Haverford West, to await their trial. The female guards recalled that Jennifer and June were catatonic when they arrived at the prison. An hour after first shutting them in their cell, one guard checked on them, only to see they were both standing exactly in the position she had left them in. They didn't respond to questions or to dinner being pushed through the door. The guards worried the girls didn't understand English or had some sort of learning difficulty. After a few hours of this, one warden entered the room and asked if the girls would like to rest. When they didn't respond, she enlisted the help of another guard to lift them both into the bunk beds that were bolted into the wall. June and Jennifer remained stiff as statues, and the guards had to physically push their heads back onto their pillows. Both twins stared ahead, unblinking. A guard used her fingertips to slide their eyelids closed. While they waited for their trial, June and Jennifer felt powerless. They turned to food to exert control over their lives. They'd switch off, with one eating both twins' meals for a day or two, while the other ate absolutely nothing. They were both competing to see who could be the skinnier and, in their eyes, better twin. Everything the girls did spiraled into a quest for domination. At Puckle Church, the sisters began to struggle against the rules of their lifelong twin game. June would have small moments of rebellion against Jennifer. They'd fought often at home, but in Puckle Church, they couldn't keep from attacking each other. When they were put in separate cells, they both recorded extreme paranoia and anger at the other twin. Both were certain the other was eating when it wasn't her turn or being treated better in her section of the prison. As part of their incarceration, the twins were required to attend association, which was a supervised free time in the recreation room. During association, they would sit at the closest table to the door, hoping to avoid any attention. Each would take a turn facing the room, while the other would take the more desirable position of facing the wall. 
But one night, June decided to make a change. According to the rules of their compulsive games, they had to walk at exactly the same speed. June purposefully traveled slowly down the corridor, forcing Jennifer to move at her pace. By the time they reached the recreation room, their usual table by the door was already taken. The two girls made their way across the room to another table on the far side. It was Jennifer's turn to face the wall, so she turned her chair around and sat. A surprising noise came from behind her. She turned back to see that instead of facing the room like she was supposed to, June was dragging a chair towards the wall. She sat down facing it, breaking the rules of the long-standing game. June stared at Jennifer, at once terrified of her sister and daring her to make a move. Jennifer did nothing but calmly picked up her book and began to read. Jennifer wrote, All the rays of her fear attracted me like a net. She knew. I knew. All I had to do was snap. All the girls would see me fighting, screaming, hissing, and attacking like a cat who is sure of its revenge on a very weak rival. She would be dead, and I would be free in my own mind. However, that night, Jennifer did not snap. She simply stewed, reading her own book until association was over. Jennifer felt rage at the slightest deviation from their twin rules. She felt she had to bottle it up in front of the other prisoners, but increasingly fantasized about beating and even killing June. And June often felt the same. In her prison diary, June wrote, One of us is plotting to kill one of us. A thud on the head on a cool evening, dragging the lifeless body, digging a secret grave. I'm in a dangerous situation, a scheming, insidious plot. How will it end? At 19, I want to be an individual independent from that bitch. But in the same passage, she contemplates how she can't live without Jennifer. How can I get rid of my own shadow? Impossible or not impossible. Without my shadow, would I die? Without my shadow, would I gain life? And while Jennifer was equally upset, she also couldn't imagine a life without a twin, writing, Somewhere I have a real twin in this world. Jay can't be my real twin. My real twin was born the exact same time as me, has my rising sign, my looks, my ways, my dreams, my ambitions. He or she will have my weaknesses, failures, opinions. All this makes a twin. No differences. I can't stand differences. But fighting with each other didn't encourage them to speak to anyone else. During their seven months incarcerated at Puckle Church, the girls refused to speak to their lawyers face-to-face, preferring to phone them from another room. At this time, a psychiatrist named Dr. William Spry became intrigued by the twins' behavior and arranged to meet the girls. Like every other authority figure, he wasn't able to get a word out of them while face-to-face. Despite this, Spry thought he knew enough about the girls to declare that they had suffered from some sort of psychopathy. 
He tried to convince the girls and their lawyers to plead guilty by reason of insanity. The lawyers could ask for the twins to be sent to Broadmoor Hospital, a high-security mental institution in London. There, the twins would be treated and cared for, and the hospital would be a much safer place for them than prison. To the girls, it sounded like a Victorian fantasy. From the information Dr. Spry had provided, they pictured themselves sitting on the lawns at Broadmoor, being served lemonade by nurses in starched white uniforms. They wrote in their diaries that they saw the hospital as a chance to finally be normal. There, with an army of doctors and psychologists to help them, they'd finally be able to talk. But the girls didn't know what was really waiting behind the walls of the hospital. Broadmoor had long acted as a place to lock up the most violent and criminally insane offenders from across the United Kingdom. Instead of peaceful rehabilitation, the girls would be sharing the halls with inmates like the murderous mobster Ronnie Cray and Peter Sutcliffe, the Yorkshire Ripper. Blissfully unaware of the horrors that awaited them at Broadmoor, 19-year-old June and Jennifer agreed to plead guilty at their trial. June and Jennifer Gibbons finally stood before the judge on May 27, 1982. They pled guilty and asked to go to Broadmoor Hospital. In the courtroom behind them, Gloria and Aubrey watched with bated breath. The lawyers had assured them that after just a year or two of rehabilitation at Broadmoor, their twins would finally be returned to them free women. After listening to the girls' guilty pleas for their crimes of theft, vandalism, and arson, the judge heard the lawyer's case for sending the girls to Broadmoor. When he was assured the institution was ready to care for such young inmates, the judge agreed that the hospital sounded like their best chance. With a pound of his gavel, he sentenced them to Broadmoor. What the twins and their lawyers hadn't expected was the length of their term. After weighing the evidence of their misdemeanors and mental illness, the judge sentenced them to Broadmoor indefinitely. The girls would only be free once the doctors at Broadmoor decided they were cured. And the twins were convinced that they would not be cured until one of them died. Join us next week as we try to unravel the double helix of June and Jennifer Gibbons, the two twins who strove to become one. Thanks again for tuning in to Unexplained Mysteries. We'll be back Thursday with part two of The Silent Twins. For more information on June and Jennifer Gibbons, amongst the many sources we used, we found Marjorie Wallace's book, The Silent Twins, and the BBC documentary, Without My Shadow, extremely helpful to our research. You can find all episodes of Unexplained Mysteries and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify. Not only does Spotify already have all of your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite ParCast originals, like Unexplained Mysteries for free from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. 
To stream Unexplained Mysteries on Spotify, just open the app and type Unexplained Mysteries in the search bar. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Parcast and Twitter at Parcast Network. We'll see you next time. See you next Thursday. And remember, never take we don't know for an answer. Unexplained Mysteries was created by Max Cutler and is a Parcast Studios original. Executive producers include Max and Ron Cutler. Sound design by Andy Waits, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, Travis Clark, and Joel Stein. This episode of Unexplained Mysteries was written by Molly Quinlan, with writing assistance by Drew Cole, and stars Molly Brandenburg and Richard Rosner. 